Well, you can turn to Matthew chapter 12. That's where we'll be this morning. Now, I, I love my kids. They're seven now. I'm very proud of them. They're doing a lot of things really well. But I have noticed that both of my children are really struggling with one question. This one question is behind every disagreement we have, every fight, every struggle between them and me and Julie. This is the question. It is the question in our home right now, who gets to be in charge of my life? Are mom and dad in charge or am I in charge? This is the question I see when my daughter fights me over what to wear to school on a winter's day. It's 40 degrees outside and I want her to wear pants and she wants to wear shorts because she can run faster in shorts. Now let me be clear, I am not the kind of parent who wants to decide what my child wears. Lord knows I can barely dress myself most days. This is all Julie, this is not me. But I have a few years on my daughter and so I know that if she wears shorts on a winter's day, it's going to prove very uncomfortable for her. It's not a healthy option. And so I encourage her, please, Gracie, trust me. I, I know that you're not going to be happy with this decision in the long run, but she gets upset and we have a fight. And what I've come to realize is it's not about the pants. It's about that question. Who gets to be in charge of her life? Daddy or her? It's the same issue I see in my son. And so we're clear. Before you think I am throwing my kids under the bus for the sake of a sermon, it's the same struggle I see in my own life. Now, it's not about me and my parents. It's about me and God. That's the greatest struggle I face every day. Today, who gets to be in charge of my life? Is it me or is it God? Who gets to call the shots? Who wins in this struggle for control of my life? See, God has made it clear what he expects of me. God has told me that I must selflessly serve my wife and kids, but I don't want to. I want to lay on the couch and watch Netflix and eat ice cream. God has made it clear that I must give thanks even when life is not going my way, but that feels ridiculous. I would much rather complain. God has made it clear that I must not look lustfully at other women, but that's hard not to. I would rather do that. God has made it clear I must give my money to the poor, but I'd rather keep it for myself. God has made it clear I must read his word, but I'd rather sleep in. So who wins? In this battle for control of my life, who gets to call the shots today? Is it God or is it me? That is the question that all of us must answer every day. Who is in control of your thoughts, your behavior, your relationships, your job, your money? Is it God or is it you? That is the question that drives our passage this morning. We have reached the moment of decision for the nation of Israel. Who gets to be in charge? This man named Jesus who claims to be king or the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were currently in charge of the nation of Israel? 
We've reached the moment of decision. Now, let me spend a moment reviewing for you and bringing you back up to speed where we are in the book of Matthew. Chapters 1 through 11 is all about the arrival of the king. He was promised in the Old Testament. So 2,000 years before Jesus showed up, God promised that a descendant of Abraham would bring God's blessing of redemption to the earth. Then a thousand years before Jesus showed up, God promised that a a son of David would show up and be king of Israel, a perfect king. And then 500 years before Jesus showed up, God promised that that perfect king would bring a perfect new covenant with him that would provide forgiveness and eternal life and fulfill all of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament. And then finally, after 2,000 years of waiting, Jesus shows up and he qualifies to be that king. He was qualified by birth. He was from the right family. He had the right genetics. He was appointed by God in his baptism. He goes down and then comes up and then God says from heaven, behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is God appointing Jesus as king. And then he qualifies to be our perfect king by doing what no other human had ever done. He resists temptation in the wilderness. He perfectly obeys God. So finally, we have met the man whom Israel waited thousands of years for. Jesus begins to reveal himself to the nation as king. He reveals himself through his authoritative teaching, like in the Sermon on the Mount, and through his powerful miracles, healing people, doing things that no one had seen before. And so Jesus has arrived. He begins to reveal himself to the nation of Israel, drawing thousands of people. And now we're to the climax of the book. This is the crux at the end of chapter 11. Finally, we're ready. It is decision time. So turn with me. Look at the end of chapter 11 of Matthew. The king finally makes his offer to the nation of Israel. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus offers them rest, but let's be clear, by rest he doesn't mean a nap. That's not what's going on here. Rest in Hebrew is a a rich term full of theological meaning. Rest was, was the peace that would come into your life when God had fulfilled all of his promises to you. Rest meant perfect contentment because of the goodness of God. You see that rest promised in passages like Deuteronomy chapter 12. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, In the Old Testament, rest is pictured as every man and woman sitting on their land under their productive fig tree next to their productive vineyard with perfect peace, absence of fear, exactly the life that they wanted. Who doesn't want that? Perfect peace, perfect fulfillment. So what did the nation of Israel have to do to get that perfect peace and fulfillment from Jesus? Well, 
Come to me and take my yoke upon you. Now, let's be clear. By yoke, Jesus does not mean this. That is spelled differently, Y-O-L-K. He means this, the bar you put on a cow, the harness, so that the cow can do labor. This is king language. This is Jesus saying, I am the master. You are the cattle. I get to direct your life. I will put my yoke upon you so that I am in charge, so that I call the shots for you. So what Jesus is saying is if you want rest, you must let me be in charge of your life. But here's the good thing. Jesus says, I I am a kind master. I am humble of heart. I am gentle to you. I will always put your needs first. And the yoke that I put on you, in some translations it says easy. In Hebrew, it's, it's comfortable. It's a comfortable yoke. It will, it's a yoke that will bring rest and blessing and joy into your life. But you must let me be in charge. And so now we face the moment of decision. Will they let him be in charge? Will the nation of Israel let Jesus be king? That's the same choice we face every day. Who gets to be in charge of my life? Do I get to run the show or will I accept Jesus' yoke upon me and follow him? So we've reached this moment of decision. Now, there's not a whole lot of suspense probably for you because you know where this is headed. (laughs) You know how the book of Matthew ends. doesn't go well in this moment. So Jesus has offered himself as king. The next part of the story is that Israel rejects her king. So let me walk you through this time of rejection. So when Jesus offered himself as king, there was one group in the nation of Israel who really did not like this offer, and that's the Pharisees the people who were currently in charge. You see, they had placed their yoke on the people of Israel. So when Jesus says, take my yoke, it means take their yoke off of you. Do not submit to the authority of the Pharisees any longer. Pharisees don't like that. Obviously, they're the people in charge. They want to protect their power. They're jealous of Jesus. I mean, here's the guys in charge. They open their mouths and people don't listen. Jesus opens his mouth and 5,000 people show up. They envy his fame. And they really hate how he humiliates them publicly. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus dropped a bomb in Israel. He showed how hypocritical the Pharisees were, how much they needed a savior. They hate that. They don't like being humiliated. And and the ultimate issue for the Pharisees, it's important for us to understand this. This is the ultimate issue behind all sin in our lives. The ultimate issue is pride. Pride. They don't want to give up their power. They don't want to give up how good they look to the nation of Israel. Are they willing to turn over power and place of authority to Jesus or not? Well, the answer is no. So they're going to begin to try to embarrass Jesus. They're going to begin to try to trip him up publicly because they're not ready to surrender their authority to Jesus. So, so they set a test, a trap for Jesus. And you see it right at the beginning of chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat them. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. So this first test centers on the question of the Sabbath, the laws of the Sabbath. Now, interestingly, Sabbath is rest. 
So this ties in exactly to what Jesus offered at the end of chapter 11. The Sabbath was a gift that God gave to the Israelites. One day off per week from work. One day where you can rest and be refreshed and spend time with God and with family. It was good for you. The Sabbath was meant to be a blessing in in your life. That's what Jesus meant by rest when he offered offered it to them at the end of chapter 11. A good thing. But the Pharisees, they had turned this good thing called the Sabbath into a really stressful thing. The Pharisees, they had created all of these regulations around the Sabbath that determined, that delineated exactly what you could or could not do. They actually legislated the number of steps you could take outside of your home on the Sabbath day. They regulated how many letters of the alphabet you could write on the Sabbath day. Two, no more. They regulated how much weight you could carry on the Sabbath day. They said food equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow. They had made the Sabbath into this burdensome thing, a stressful thing. It wasn't restful at all. And so Jesus comes to set the law free from the legalistic shackles of the Pharisees. He wants people to enjoy God's gift of the Sabbath, but the Pharisees aren't okay with that. No, they're the ones who want to be in charge. They're not okay with Jesus letting his disciples break their rules. They expect Jesus and the disciples to submit to their yoke, to to submit to their authority. So they must challenge Jesus. That's what they do here at the beginning of chapter 12. They can't let this public disrespect go unchallenged. So they challenge Jesus. How does Jesus respond? Well, he wins actually quite easily. We won't read it all. He makes uh, mockery of them. He reminds them that in the Old Testament, God often allowed his people to break the regulations of the law if they were starving. Why? Because God never meant the law to be a straitjacket to his people. God is good. He is a, a gracious king. He's a good master, unlike the Pharisees. So Jesus reminds them of that, and then he draws the issue to a head in verse 8. Look at verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of Man, that's a title for Jesus. It's a kingly title. Jesus is saying, I'm the king. I get to determine what the Sabbath is, not you. So Jesus has made it clear. The Pharisees need to bow to his authority. They're not ready to do that. So they set up a second test of Jesus' authority. That's in verses 9 through 10. So look at verse 9. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? This is not a legitimate question. This is a lose-lose question. They're trying to trap him because they know if Jesus disregards the law, then they can turn the nation against him. If Jesus agrees with their interpretation of the law, then they win because they look like the smart people. But Jesus is smarter than them. And so he's going to turn the tables on them. Jesus is going to win once again. Look at verse 11. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, what man is there among you? who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? 
So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus shows their hypocrisy. You Pharisees, you will make an exception with one of your animals is in distress, but you won't make the same exception for a human being in distress. Come on, guys. You're being ridiculous. And then just to show them how much in charge Jesus is. Look at the next verse. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out. It was restored to normal like the other. Boom. Jesus does a miracle. That's the purpose of the miracles in the gospels. He shows everyone. I'm the guy in charge. I'm the king. Look at the power that I have. He's humiliated the Pharisees publicly. And so for the Pharisees, the game is over. Now they are angry. Look at the next verse, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. They're ready to kill him. They're done playing games. They're done challenging Jesus to intellectual questions. Now they're going to try to figure out a way to kill him. So we're ready for this final confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. One more final showdown. And it begins with an absolutely ludicrous miracle. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. It's a really easy verse to read and not think about what just happened. I call this the trifecta. It is one of the greatest miracles in the entire, entire Bible from beginning to end. This man has three incurable conditions. He's demon-possessed, he is blind, and he's deaf. There's no medical solution to any of those three. Jesus simply heals him. Boom. All three taken care of. It is one of the greatest miracles ever. It shows incredible power that Jesus has. And look at the response. Look at what happens in the next verse. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Finally, this is it. The crowd finally gets the point. This is the question of the Gospels. Is this the man we've been waiting for? The son of David, that means the king. It's the king here. Now, interestingly, in Greek, the question is phrased in a doubtful way. Why? Because the, the crowd still looks at Jesus and they don't see a king. He's poor. He's not wearing fancy clothes. He doesn't have an army. He's not sitting on the throne. There's no palace around him. He doesn't look like what they expected a king to look like, but holy cow, did you just see that crazy miracle? Could this actually be the king, even though he looks nothing like what we expected? This is the moment. This is the question. Finally, the crowd is getting it. The Pharisees instantly recognize how dangerous that question is. Crowds ask this question, the Pharisees feel the power slipping through their fingers. And so they must fight back. So look at the next verse. Here's what the Pharisees say. This is their denial, their excuse that they give to Jesus' power. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, that is, Satan, the ruler of the demons. Now, this kind of reminds me of playing board games with my son, which we do. And he's really smart. He wins a lot of the time, but I do have 33 years on him. So occasionally I win. And especially when he was younger, his tendency when I would win the game was to yell, you're cheating. That was just his, his way of handling that moment. Now, no, I was not cheating. It was clear I had won, but he didn't want to accept that clear reality. We laugh when a little kid does it. But it's not funny 
when the intelligent leaders of an entire nation do the same thing. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. They cannot deny the power of what just happened. So they don't say, well, that dude was faking it. He was a plant out in the audience. No, they know something phenomenal just happened. All they can do is close their eyes, clench their fists, and yell, he's cheating. That's the only thing they can do. In this moment in which they deny Jesus. And so Jesus pauses. And now he speaks directly to the Pharisees. And he gives them one final warning. One last warning to help them understand what is going on in this moment of decision. Now we're not going to read all of this for lack of time. He's going to begin in verses 25 through 29. By showing the absurdity of their claim. That it's ridiculous. This could not be from the power of Satan. And then he's going to warn them about the seriousness. Of the choice that they now face. Look at verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you. Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven whoever speaks a word against the son of man it shall be forgiven him but whoever speaks against the holy spirit it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come this is what we call the unpardonable sin and a lot of people are really scared of it They're scared that they could commit this sin and then they couldn't be saved. A lot of parents are scared of this. Maybe my child could do this thing and then never get saved. Let me be very clear. You and your children can never commit this sin. It is locked in the context of this passage. It was only possible at one particular time in one particular place. Because what is this sin? This sin is that you just saw with your own eyes Jesus in the flesh filled with the power of the Holy Spirit perform a phenomenal miracle and then you, one of the leaders of the nation of Israel, tell the nation that wasn't God, that was Satan. That's what it means to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that is not possible for you because Jesus is not walking the earth performing miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit in front of your eyes today. So you need never fear the unpardonable sin. But the Pharisees, they did need to fear it. This was a real issue for them. They alone could commit the unpardonable sin. Why? Well, because they had incredible privilege in life. They got to actually see Jesus perform miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit and then interpret that miracle to the nation of Israel. And with great response or with great privilege comes great responsibility. They now had the responsibility to say yes to Jesus and if they didn't, they would face an incredible consequence. They would never be forgiven. Not in this life or the next life. If the Pharisees reject Jesus in this moment, in this place, then it would result in their eternal condemnation. Jesus warns them in the most serious language possible. He wants them to understand how serious this is. He continues that warning. Jump down to verse 36. But I tell you, you Pharisees, that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your word you will be justified, and by your word you will be condemned. He's not talking about words in general. He's talking about words about Jesus. 
What you religious leaders, you Pharisees, what you say about me now will be the basis of your eternal judgment. So you better choose wisely what you say next. He has just put the ball in their court. It is their final opportunity to humble themselves and submit to Jesus. Let's see what they do. Well, this isn't a surprise. You know what they're going to do. They're going to commit their final denial of Jesus. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, at first that might seem like a legitimate question, but what did Jesus do three minutes ago? The trifecta, the greatest miracle they had ever seen. Oh, Jesus, come on, one more. Come on, keep doing it. What is this? Well, you got to understand the Pharisees are really good politicians, They never tell you what they really want to say. They're really sly. They're sneaky. And so what this is is a politically savvy rejection of Jesus, and he knows that. They have rejected Jesus. They'd waited 2,000 years for their king to arrive, and when he did, they said no. And the Pharisees, because they are in charge of the nation of Israel, the entire nation will end up following them. It takes a while. It's not till the end of the book, but the entire nation will follow this decision that the Pharisees made at this moment. So this is it. This is the crux. This is where the book turns. Everything heads downhill from here. The nation of Israel has rejected her king, and so the king rejects Israel. From this moment on, storm clouds are building in the book of Matthew. You can think of it from this point on. Winter is coming, and everybody knows it. It's going downhill quickly. And so Jesus rejects the nation of Israel. He promises that that generation of Israel would begin to experience God's judgment. It would begin in this life. This life would go poorly for them. Look at verse 43. And when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it also will be for this evil generation. This man, this is a hypothetical man, he stands in for Israel. He's a metaphor for that generation of Israelites. They had been spiritually cleansed by John the Baptist. He came in and and prepared them to receive their king. He swept the house and put it in order. And then they said no to Jesus. They rejected their king. And so Jesus turns them over to Satan at this moment. The house is empty. They are now easy, right picking for every demonic force on earth. And so that generation of Israel went downhill and and experienced judgment and pain in this life and in the next life. Jesus also declares not only will this generation suffer in this life, but they will suffer in the next life as well. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's warning them this generation at the great and final day of judgment, you will be condemned. Now that doesn't mean every Israelite because lots of individual Jews within that generation like Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha, they trusted in Jesus and were saved, but that was the minority. The vast majority of Jews living on earth at this time rejected Jesus and chose to become an enemy of God's people. And as a result, 
they will be condemned when they stand before God. So Jesus promises because of this generation's rejection of him, this life will go badly, the next life will go badly, and Jesus' life will go badly. From this moment on, suffering is promised not just to that generation, but to Jesus as well. Look at verse 39. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that is the first promise you have in the book of Matthew of Jesus going to the cross. Before this, Jesus was headed to the throne. It was all about him sitting on the throne, but now they've said no, and so Jesus is headed to the cross. Everything is downhill from this moment on in the book of Matthew. We have turned from the throne to the cross. Storm clouds are building. Things are headed towards death. That's really bad news. But in the midst of all of that bad news, Jesus reveals some really good news. Really good news, particularly for us. Jesus immediately begins to tell us, That because of Israel's rejection, there is a new kingdom coming. There's something new on the horizon, something new and wonderful and completely unexpected. Look at verse 47. Someone said to Jesus, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside speaking, seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now that's kind of weird, but this weird story is actually really illuminating because Jesus is promising the times have changed. Because Israel rejected me, now I am going to rewrite the invitation list to my kingdom. I'm going to invite into my family everyone. You don't have to be genetically related to me. Now the kingdom of God won't be based on ethnicity like it was in the Old Testament. Now it's based on faith. If you come to me, then you are welcome. Whether you are Jew or Samaritan or Gentile, Jesus has opened the floodgates all may come in to this new form of the kingdom that we call the church. It wasn't around in the Old Testament. It wasn't even around in the books of the Gospels. It doesn't start until Acts chapter 2, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit from heaven to begin baptizing all people, Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles who will trust in him, all are welcome in this new and wonderful form of the kingdom called the church. It's a new form of the kingdom that Jesus begins to reveal, especially in the next chapter, chapter 13. You can read that on your own. Jesus begins to speak in parables about this new, mysterious form of the kingdom. It will start like a tiny mustard seed. No one will pay any attention to it, but it will grow into the largest tree the world has ever seen, and people will come from every nation to be part of it. That's the church. We won't have political power or armies or borders or palaces like the Old Testament kingdom of God. We will have people from every nation united in one family through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And here is what I really want you to get as you think about this good news. Revealed in the midst of really bad news. There's this incredibly beautiful thing that Jesus is doing here. I I don't want you to, to miss this. Okay, here's the deal. The Pharisees just did a really 
really bad thing. They rejected Jesus. And let's be clear, God did not want them to do that. God never desires sin. They made a bad choice. They will be held responsible for that. But here's the beautiful thing. You have a God who is so big and so wise and so powerful that he had already planned from eternity past how to use their really, really bad decision for infinite good in your life. Because you know where this is going. What an incredible mystery. That God has revealed. The Pharisees make a really, really bad decision and God uses it to lead Jesus to the cross so that your sins can be forgiven. The Pharisees make a really, really bad decision and God uses it to create the church, this new and better and beautiful family of God made up of people from all nations. It reminds me of what I think is one of the most beautiful passages you'll find anywhere in the Bible. It's Acts chapter 2. This man, Peter says, this Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Who sent Jesus to the cross? The sinful Pharisees or God? Both. That's the beauty of God's goodness and wisdom and power. These sinful men made an evil decision, and yet God, in his infinite wisdom and power, already knew how to take their evil and turn it for infinite good for all of us who will come to Jesus in faith. So that's how the story plays out in the book of Matthew. Now let's talk about how the story is going to play out in your life. Because today you face the exact same choice that the Pharisees faced 2,000 years ago. Who gets to be in charge of your life? Who gets to sit on the throne of your life? Is it you or is it Jesus? Now, maybe it's not Jesus because you don't even have a relationship with Jesus yet. Jesus is not in your life yet. You are are living on your own. You're, You're trying to do what you think is right. You're trying to earn your way to God or heaven or whatever you happen to believe. Or maybe you don't even believe any of that. But Jesus isn't at all a part of your life today. If that is you, then I encourage you today to invite Jesus into your life. What do you need to do? Just Just come to him. Just say, Jesus, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I, I cannot make my life work without you. I need you, Jesus. Come to Jesus in faith, and he will enter your life and give you what? Rest. Now and in eternity. He will bring you the forgiveness and the eternal life that you crave, and he'll bring it to you for free. You don't have to work for that anymore. That's yours for free the moment you say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I believe you exist. I believe you're the son of God who came to die for me and rise from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Invite Jesus into your life today in faith. Now, for the rest of us who have a relationship with Jesus, Jesus is in our life because we've trusted in him. How do we apply this to our life? Let me walk you through that as the men go back to prepare communion. Actually, I'm really excited we're going to celebrate communion this morning. This is exactly how we need to respond to Jesus in this moment. How do we who have trusted in Jesus apply Matthew chapter 12? Well, if you've trusted in Jesus then Jesus is already your savior and nothing can ever change that. And yet you still face this question. 
Every day when you wake up, you get to decide who gets to be on the throne of my life today. Does Jesus get to call the shots or am I going to call the shots? What does it look like if Jesus is calling the shots? Well, if Jesus is calling the shots in my life, then I'm going to spend time praying every day so that I can turn my life over to him, give him all that I have. And I'm going to spend time in his word so that I can find out what he expects me to do. And I'm going to obey him because he is king and he gets to decide what is right. And I'm going to serve him with my time and my talents and my money because he is the king and his will reigns. That's what it looks like if Jesus is in charge. So with that in mind, I want you to honestly answer this question. As you look at this past week, these last seven days, who was on the throne of your life? Who was calling the shots? Was it Jesus or was it you? Was Jesus on the throne of your life? If not, why not? Now, there's a number of reasons why Jesus might not have been on the throne of your life this week. Maybe there's, it's because there is a sin in your life that you really enjoy and you don't want to give it up. And I understand that. Sin can be really enjoyable in the moment. But here's the thing that I want you to understand. Sin always leads to pain, either in your life or in the life of someone you love. Sin always costs you rest. That's the point of the end of chapter 11. If you want the rest that God provides, you must obey. That sin is costing you peace. It is costing you rest. It is costing you fulfillment. Sin is always fun in the moment and painful in the end. Obedience is always hard in the moment and joyous in the end. So you get to choose. Do you want short-term pleasure or long-term satisfaction? If you're ready to say no to that sin and begin to follow Jesus into true rest and true peace, then my challenge for you this morning is to confess during communion, confess that sin to God, and then tell one person today about that sin in your life and your choice to turn away from it. The moment you tell that sin to another person, they can begin to hold you accountable. That makes it more likely that you will fight that sin and begin to walk in obedience. Or maybe Jesus wasn't on the throne of your life this week because you kind of, you sense that Jesus is calling you to do something really risky that you're afraid of. Maybe he's challenging you to go share your faith publicly with someone who could ridicule you. Or maybe he is calling you to go on a missions trip overseas this summer. Or maybe he's calling you to give a crazy amount of money to someone in need. And you're afraid of that. And so here's what I want you to understand. Um, Jesus likes to call us into risk. That's, That's just the kind of master he is. Jesus isn't so much into comfort or the status quo. He is going to always challenge you to do things that stretch your faith, that challenge you to get out of the boat and walk on the water. That's who Jesus is. But here's the really good news. We haven't gotten to it yet. It's at the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus promises to his disciples and to all of us, when we follow him into risky situations, he promises you, I am with you always. Jesus is with you in the risk. In fact, he is more present with you in the risk than when you try to play it safe and disobey. 
And so I'm going to challenge you to step out and take that risk in obedience to Jesus. And here's my very practical challenge. If you sense that Jesus is calling you to do something risky, then I want you to tell one person about it before you leave Southwood this morning. Tell someone the risk you believe Jesus is calling you to take. The moment you actually say it out loud, it creates accountability and it creates motivation for you to follow through. And now you have a prayer partner who can pray for you to obey. Finally, maybe the reason Jesus wasn't on your throne of your life this week is because you've let him be on the throne of your life in the past and it didn't work out the way you hoped. It would be really easy to let Jesus be on the throne if it always led to sunshine and happiness and smiles every day. But that's not life in this world. We live in a broken world. And so often obedience leads to suffering. You realize it did for 11 of the 12 disciples. They were executed specifically because of their allegiance to Jesus. And yet for some reason we have this misconception that if we're good people who follow Jesus and do what he expects of us, that life is going to be all rosy and sweet for us every day. But that's, that's not reality. It's, it, and it's hard to deal with, with that reality, with the fact that obedience doesn't always work out. And that challenges us. So here's how it worked in, in my own life. I've talked to you guys about this before. I, I'm an engineer, so I'm very analytical. I'm also not as smart as you guys sometimes give me credit for. So I went through life with the assumption, unchallenged, that if I'm a good man who works hard, does what he should, keeps his nose clean, start, plants a whole campus of a church, works a lot of overtime, blesses a lot of people, takes care of his kids, that life would be hard, but it would feel so satisfying and joyous. And what did I get? Depression for a long period of time. That was not what I expected. That was not what I asked for. Why was I depressed? Because I sinned? No, because life is broken. And Jesus never promised me happiness this side of heaven. And so when you experience those moments of deep disappointment, when life didn't measure up to your expectations, you face a choice in that moment. Are you going to let Jesus stay on the throne? Even when he's not doing what you expected? Even when he's not doing what you want? Or are you going to take the throne back and try to, to get the happiness that you think you deserve in this life? As for me, at least today, because we can only decide it on a day-to-day basis, at least for today, I continue to allow Jesus to be king. Even though I will honestly confess, there is a lot about him I do not understand and a lot of things he's done that I do not like. And yet, he gets to be king because he knows a whole lot more than I do. I trust that at the end of the day, he sees how everything's working to my good and he will bring it all to this moment when I experience the rest that he promised. I want that rest. I don't have it yet, but I will. And so he gets to stay on the throne. My challenge for you today is to take this time during communion and honestly answer the question, who's on the throne right now? Who's getting to call the shots of your life? Who's getting to decide what you think about, what you say, what you do, how you spend your time and your money and your relationships and your job and your career? Who's calling the shots of your life? If it's not Jesus, then I invite you to hand him the throne, maybe for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time. It's really hard to let Jesus stay on the throne. We keep crawling back up there day after day. And so as the men come forward, guys can come forward. 
I want you to take this time to think about who's on the throne of your life right now. I want you to to spend this time speaking to Jesus honestly about who's in charge. And I invite you to give the throne of your life back to him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received that from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this morning we remember you. We remember that though you are our king and you deserve the throne, you chose the cross. We remember that you were willing to take our sins and die in our place. We remember that you are a king who is humble and gentle and selfless. And we praise you because that's not what you deserved. You deserved all worship, all glory, all fame, all honor. And yet you willingly chose to sacrifice that for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a master who who loves us, who, who puts our needs above your comfort. You are so good to us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the phenomenal mystery of how you from time eternal in the past, you were already planning how you would use the most evil act in the history of the human race, the crucifixion of your son, how you would use it for infinite good. We praise you that you are so big and so wise and so good that nothing can thwart your plan. We praise you that you brought great good out of this dark chapter of the book of Matthew and that through that good you have set us free from sin and you have invited us into this family, into the church, the body of Christ. We thank you for how good you are to us. And we pray now as we go out from here, Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to respond to to the goodness and the grace of your son by willingly handing him the throne of our lives. I pray that each and every day when we wake up and face that decision, who gets to call the shots today? I pray that our answer would be Jesus. I pray that we would be willing to follow him even when we don't understand what he's doing or like what he's doing. I pray that we would trust him and that we would allow him to be our king and and our master, that we would follow him, that we would do as he says, and that as a result, you would grow that, that rest, that peace in our lives that he promised. Thank you so much for your son in his name. We pray. Now you guys can stand. Let's respond in worship.